Uh, now we're going to turn to God's Word. Uh, we're going to be this morning in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, looking at the life and ministry, on, at least in terms of er- the earthly life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we are here in Mark chapter 5. As we begin, let me go ahead and pray for us as we, as we start. Lord, uh, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would open our ears, open our hearts, open our understandings to be receptive to what you have to say. Your word is not just any word that we, um, for us to hear, but it is what we need to hear. It is your very word for us. It is a word that calls us out, a word that demands our attention. It's a word of, um, that shows us what is right and good and true. And it's also a word that shows us uh, the, the path to, uh, to you through Jesus Christ and what he has done. And we pray that this morning as it, we open it up here, that that would be made clear. That Jesus and his work would be more beautiful to us than it was before. That it would be more believable to us than it was before. And that we would come away from here with a, a newfound awe and in, in him and with lives that are committed in faith to looking to him and to, to living for him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen, it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. 
Amen. Well, he was probably spoken of like some sort of boogeyman by desperate parents trying to keep their naughty children in line. Be good or that scary man up in the hills will come down and get you. A man demon-possessed, naked, screaming, raving out of his mind, bleeding and filthy, who lived in a place that was associated with death. He lived among the graves, among the tombs. The people in town could probably hear his screams echoing out through the night as he gashed himself with rocks. And it does sound like the beginning of a horror story, and no doubt the townspeople here regarded him with this sort of fear and revulsion and maybe even this morbid curiosity. But amid the presence, his, presence, or his appearance, he was a man. And so consider him in light of his humanity. A man who had friends at one point, perhaps a family. A man created in God's image who laughed and enjoyed life and did the same things that everyone else did. But a man, though, who came under the enslaving bondage and influence of demonic forces. And who was tormented mercilessly night and day. Tormented in body, in his mind, and in his emotions. And still, though, despite his appearances, a man that some of us might be able to relate with to a degree. It could be right now in your life. Maybe it was at a prior time of life. And that might sound shocking or strange. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's a man who was enslaved to evil and who was unable to be helped. His life was controlled by evil working upon him and working in him. And he was powerless to do anything about it. No matter how hard he tried, the evil that held him overrode his controls. The townsfolk tried to help him by binding him with, with chains, but it did no good. He was totally helpless. He was a man who was associated with death. He lived in the tombs. And death seemed inevitable. His enslavement was going to kill him eventually in a slow and excruciating way. Or on the flip side, death would be the only way that he could escape the hell that he was living. He was a man out of control. His enslavement would eventually lead him to the grave. And a man who lived under deep psychological terror. Every waking moment was an inescapable, horrible existence. See, there was a real man suffering underneath the description that we're given. And we need to read people like this in the Bible as real human beings and to humanize them despite their appearances, just like all people deserve to be. He was a hopeless man living in the most miserable existence imaginable. But still, despite his hopelessness, he wasn't without hope, as none of us are. And as we humanize him, perhaps you've been able to see maybe some shades of yourself in him from a former life, or maybe how you've come this morning. Feeling enslaved to evil, which comes out in your habits, you can't break free from them. And you feel like it's killing you inside, or it's killing your relationships, or it might even kill you as you're driven to death. Living under deep mental or psychological pain, maybe even a disorder, And that's not to say that any of those things are demonic forces at work in your life. And hang on to that. We're going to get to that in a moment. But at the least, the experience of the effects of this man's experience are echoed in your own life. 
Now, we refer to Jesus in various ways. We talk about him as a prophet. We talk about him as a priest. We talk about him as king. But there's another way that's re- that we talk about him that's reflected in this story. Those words are Christus Victor. That's Latin for Christ the Victor. He came as a conqueror. He came to conquer the demonic forces that have held this world in bondage. And he came as a liberator. He frees us from the grasp of the demonic and from the clutches of evil. And so our main point this morning here, our main takeaway is that Jesus is Lord over the demons. And he mercifully sets us free as trophies of his grace. He's Lord over the demons. There's conqueror right there. And he mercifully sets us free, right there, that's liberator, as trophies of his grace. That's what he does when he sets us free for his purposes, to be trophies of his grace, displaying and reflecting his glory. That's what we're going to break that down here. First, that Jesus is Lord over the demons. He's conqueror. Now, as thinking about this, first of all, it might raise questions, because as modern uh, Western Americans here talking about demons is always a strange topic. And that's because many of us here fall into one of two modern sensibilities when talking about the, the demonic. On one hand, we can get too focused on demons, where we take, it, we take the spiritual warfare se- seriously and the unseen world very seriously, but it can go on to an unhealthy emphasis of it going beyond the limited understanding that we have just from, from Scripture, and it goes off into speculative territory. With a lot of ideas that are commonly passed along as common knowledge, but without biblical basis. And sometimes we're more informed by John Milton and Paradise Lost than we are the Bible. And it makes the whole concept of demons almost this mythological realm. And it can sometimes even downplay personal sin and just simply blame it on the demonic. Well, the devil made me do it. But on the other hand, we have here that if if we can be so consumed with it on one hand, on the other side, we can scientifically push it away or push it aside. If one side comes across as almost mythological, then the other side has almost demythologized it by modern human understanding. And it might be because we're products of of an overly scientific culture and we set aside the things that we don't see. Or we react so much, overreact so much in certain theological circles uh, and and this this deep proclivity towards looking at at the, the demonic and the unseen that we go to the other side and we minimize the demonic. And that's common in our reformed circles here as, as a reformed church. All right, maybe, you know, sometimes you say, well, maybe it's not demons. Maybe it's just human sin. And that's, that's true. But we also end up forgetting the unseen spiritual world that's around us. A neither extreme there is helpful. And we can't afford to fall into one extreme or the other. Because God's word speaks to the reality of demonic forces. And we need to take that seriously. Though that doesn't mean that we go off into the speculative. We want to only go as far as God's word clearly tells us. And we also, though, need to remember that part of Jesus' earthly ministry was formed and shaped by casting out the demonic forces. He cast out demons. He talked of Satan falling like lightning. He came to deliver people from the principalities and the powers that are at work in this age. 
But you have one more practical reason why we need to keep a healthy and grounded view of demons. You want to know it? You have an unseen enemy who's out to kill you. All right. And I'm serious, though, when I say that. You have an unseen enemy who is out to kill you. And that is serious. Because Satan and his demons, Satan and his hordes would love nothing more than for you to be brought down into ruin and to be annihilated in one way or another. And that's exhibited clearly by this demon-possessed man. The demons here within him were literally going to kill him. They were leading him along a self-destructive path. He was gashing himself with rocks, screaming in agony. And if there's little doubt there, it was proven by what happened to the pigs. The demons enter into the herd of pigs, and what do they do? They violently rush down and drown them. They're drowned into the watery grave. They had an intent to kill. The demons within this man had an intent to torture and inflict misery upon his wretched life until he eventually would succumb to death. Now, why are Satan and the demons so intent on this? Because they hate God with an unholy hatred and they will stop at nothing to wreck what he's made. What's the greatest offense that you could commit against a renowned artist? Correct me if I'm wrong, It's probably not ridiculing their art. They would just dismiss you. But if you destroy the beauty and the art that they've made, if you've shredded it, if you've defaced it, that's something entirely different. And Satan and the demons burn with such a hatred towards God that they want to wreck the beauty and the goodness in the world. Isn't that why Satan, as the serpent, tempted Adam and Eve to sin in the garden? Because it would devastate humanity. It would wreck the peace in the world that God lovingly put there. But they also hate his image. When they see humanity, they see the image of God in us. And so they work to wreck it. It's the equivalent of ripping up a photo of a hated enemy. Or throwing darts at a picture of someone that you don't like. And then the stakes are raised even higher when you consider not just humanity in general. But his beloved people, the people whom Jesus bled and died for, and the people who belong to him, the demons will do whatever they can to insert disruption into that relationship. And this is the sort of demonic hostility that Jesus encounters as this man, this demon-possessed man, runs toward him. But it's also, though, what Jesus came to do, to confront the forces of darkness, to conquer the forces of darkness, and to to break their power. And so immediately this confrontation occurs. The demons within this man challenge Jesus. And they consider here for a moment what Jesus was up against. What's your name? Well, my name is Legion, for we are many. All right, there's an incredible number of demons here when he references Legion. It's a reference to a Roman legion, the the unit of soldiers that numbered 6,000. And also a clue here, it's a clue to the the sort of power that was at work here and the the force that was pressing into this man. Because it wasn't just the brute force that that was associated with this fearsome fighting unit, but it was also the efficiency that how, of how they worked and the, the efficiency that was associated with the Roman army in this, in this day. It was a coordinated assault, assault upon him, strength in numbers. And the first shots here are fired by the demon, but 
not out of offense, but more out of, a, out of fear. Verse 7 says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now they recognize Jesus' identity. They have no doubt about who he is. They have no doubt about the power that he holds and about what he came to do. But there's a terror in their words. Don't torment me. They know that their time is near. But nonetheless, they're having this last-ditch attempt to try to control the situation and grab some power. Because they, what they do is they start naming him. They say, Jesus, we know who you are. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And that might sound strange to our ears, but a common pagan belief in that time was that you could hold power over a spirit by naming them. It's this vain attempt for them to try to vie some, uh, for some power there. They even try to get Jesus under oath by God not to destroy him, which is really the most desperate move imaginable. But Jesus is the one who has them in terror. They know this whole time that they're bound to his permission. And they can't do anything apart from his commanding word. There's no power that Jesus can't defeat, whether it be seen or unseen. There's no power that he isn't sovereign over or has command of. And that continues for his people. There is no need for his redeemed people to be afraid of the demonic because Jesus, his care and his protection as the conqueror extends over them and extends over you. Now, certainly demons deserve a respect as any strange, unseen power requires. But that doesn't mean that we go off and live in fear or terror. Jesus came to break the power of sin and death. But he also came to conquer Satan and break his power in the world and over human lives. As we heard before in Genesis 3.15 this morning... After Satan used his most, most lethal weapon over humanity, the tool of deception and cunning, God promised that he would send a deliverer, someone who would come and who would rescue them, someone who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan, crush the demonic forces while simultaneously suffering a non-lethal blow to himself. He would crush the head of the serpent while his heel would be crushed. And we see that happening in a way here with a demon-possessed man. Jesus coming as the promised one and exerting his power over Satan, wrestling power away from him. But it's what would ultimately come to fruition at the cross. That promise of Genesis 3.15 was happening at Golgotha, which is Aramaic for, interestingly enough, the place of the skull. The crushing of the skull, the crushing of the head of the serpent was happening as Jesus was hanging on the cross that was placed on the place of the skull. His crushing there, the crushing of his heel as he was on the cross, was going to be the crushing of the head of the serpent right there. There, Satan was crushed. He was stripped of his power. It wasn't the defeat of Jesus, but it was where Jesus conquered his demonic enemy, your demonic enemy. No longer is Satan able to condemn us for our sins. The justice of God was paid in full as, they, as your sins were laid upon Jesus Christ. Satan's power and his sway over the world was broken. His defeat, his ultimate eternal defeat was signed and written in the blood of Jesus. 
So be aware of the demonic forces in the world. You can't afford to live in ignorance. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's a lion that may cause havoc, but he's also a lion on a very short leash. He's a lion whose fangs have been torn out. Romans 16, 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Be aware. Be careful. Watch out. Be wary. But the person who is in Christ by faith ultimately has no need to fear or to be afraid of the demonic. Because Christ Jesus has crushed the head of the demonic, of Satan at the cross. He's declared victory over him. And you who are in Christ Jesus also have victory. You belong to God in Jesus. You are indwelt by the Spirit And so what could ever come between you and God? What could separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. No power on earth. No power in heaven. No power seen or unseen. And so be wary and careful. But you don't have to live in fear. But also second, he also mercifully sets us free. He's the liberator. He mercifully sets us free. By conquering the demonic forces, Jesus has also liberated this poor man from the evil spirits that were oppressing and enslaving him. And we don't know how long this man had been possessed, but we know that it was enough time to have gained notoriety. Uh, Being freed from, from the demons as Jesus cast them out was one thing. But do you think that there must have been questions that were may have been arising in his mind, or that could have. Well, what if they come back? What if they come with an even deeper hatred? What if they come with more of their friends? Now, when that was his reality and he was powerless, those aren't unrealistic questions or unreasonable questions to ask. And although he had been set free, he still, though, wasn't free from a life of fear right there. But Jesus gives him a sign that he didn't need to be afraid That the demons wouldn't return and that he was indeed set free. You know what that sign was? The sending of the the demons into the pigs and the entire herd rushing headlong down into a watery grave. Now use your imaginations for a moment here and think about the scene. Don't sanitize it. Don't don't make some bacon joke in your mind either. But 2,000 pigs rushing into the sea squealing and choking in the churning water and then bobbing lifelessly in the sea and then washing up on the shore. That right there was a sign of their defeat. That was a vivid sign of Jesus' definitive victory over them. But what if they return? I'm still afraid. Well, Jesus gave them a sign. Just look at those floating carcasses out there. They are drowned and they are never returning. That was a sign that he was indeed free. A terrible sign, a horrid sign, yet one for him to strangely take comfort in. Jesus gave us another horrid, terrible sign that those who trust in him are free. One that we can take comfort in. The sign of a rough-hewn cross, covered in blood, with a brow-beaten, scourged, crucified Savior hanging from it. 
Am I really free? Of course you are, just as surely as Jesus was nailed to that cross. The cross liberates us from fear. Fear from condemnation of our sins and its bondage. Fear from sin. Free from, free from, uh, uh, free from fear. Because Jesus has done it all for us. The, this man here experienced more than, though, just liberation from fear. It was also a very real liberation from enslavement. And an enslavement that often takes the form of self-destructive hopelessness. He was a man who was hopeless, with no one able to help him. He was unable to be restrained or to be bound to avoid harming himself or suppressing his actions. He was uncontrollable. He was unable to control himself. The powers that held him were too strong for his will and for his own abilities. And his enslavement was literally killing him. It was inevitably leading him to a slow and miserable death. Using him until he was absolutely spent. Doesn't that sound like so many people who are enslaved to various evils? It sounds like addictions to drugs, to alcohol, to bondage of sinful habits like gambling or pornography or lying or insert whatever other habit that takes control over our lives, controls our thinking, and then leads us down the slow path to destruction. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that addictions or sinful habits are directly demonic in origin or a result from possession or or anything. Or to be set free from demons is then to be set free from habits. But like demonic power, though, there is a destructive influence that holds sway and it keeps us in bondage. It controls our thinking, even finding ourselves doing what we don't want to do despite our best attempts at willpower. But I'm not going to be so naive as to only speak in the third person like they're just out there. There very well might be some of us here who are held in bondage like that. And if that's the case, if you feel yourself be held in bondage like that, I am so glad that you're here this morning. Because this here is where we are hearing, where you can hear about Jesus and the liberation that he gives and that only he can break your destructive habits. But at the least, though, there are some of you who have been there before and are fighting to stay sober or to keep themselves away from the habit and still might be living with fear from the past ways that you have lived or that you are racked by the accompanying guilt and shame. And the only help there is, the only freedom and the only liberation that can truly pull you free is in Jesus He liberates the slaves and the captives of all sorts, those even captive to demonic, but even all the way down to enslavement in our evil habits. He's a conqueror. He's a liberator. But he's also merciful and kind, and he comes to our rescue. Every person from town saw this demoniac in subhuman terms. He resembled, in their eyes, a beast more than a man. But what did Jesus see? He saw underneath it all there was a man, an image bearer, a sufferer, and he showed him incredible mercy. Can he do that with you? Why wouldn't he? This man was transformed by what Jesus did. He became clothed and in his right mind, as it says in verse 15. 
And his transformation wasn't because he tried harder. It wasn't from doing all of the right things. It wasn't from the steps that he took. But he was transformed because he was liberated. He had nothing. And he bolted to Jesus despite his demonic throes. And the Son of God looked upon him with compassion and with mercy. Transformation and hope won't come from within you. It won't come from what you do. But it comes from outside of you. It comes from what Jesus can do. Jesus is a conqueror. He's a liberator. But third here, he takes us and makes us trophies of his grace. He makes us beautiful trophies of his grace that he shows to us. The pig herders had just witnessed this astonishing event. The infamous demonic, demoniac made well, but also their entire herd drowned in the water. And so it's understandable then, what do you do for something like that? What's your first inclination to witnessing something incredible? You got to tell someone. They didn't have phones to go and text their friends. They ran into town and they, they, they told everyone the news. And the herders come back then with, with a crowd of people. And it's true, they see it all. And they're deeply disturbed. But not immediately by the, the pigs bobbing in the water and on the shore. Verse 15 And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What sort of power are we dealing with? It's one they didn't understand because they begged Jesus to leave. Shouldn't this have been a time of celebration and recognizing a great liberating power, a divine power at work here? No. They're more consumed by the value of the pigs that were lost than they were the life of this man who was redeemed. 2,000 pigs. Now, to be certain, that is a serious, significant financial loss. But what's more valuable? It's the soul of a man. And when we look at individuals through Jesus' eyes, then that's what we see. We see deep value and inherent worth as they bear God's image a value that, that cannot be expressed in financial terms. It doesn't matter who they are. They are of the deepest value and are worthy of being shown the deepest respect. Looking at people through this lens won't change them, but it will change you. It will change how you treat and regard the homeless, how you look at the unborn, the elderly, migrants, There's no way to put monetary value or any sort of measurement of worth upon any human being because there is an immortal soul there of priceless worth that's given dignity by God himself. This man wasn't just freed from satanic power. He was a prize reclaimed by Jesus, a prize of incredible worth that gave him joy to lovingly set free. This man was a trophy of God's grace. We're proud of our trophies because they represent what we've accomplished. And Jesus has so much care and so much joy in his trophies of grace. Look at this one. Look at that one. Have you seen what I've done in this one? But Jesus puts his trophies on display differently than we do. Now, how many of you have earned trophies before? And where are they right now? Some of them are probably in the trash. If you've kept them, where are they? Are they in a closet, doing nothing, 
That really just shows ultimately how proud we are of them, isn't it? But usually we put them on display to let others know of our accomplishments or to remind ourselves of our accomplishments. But still, what do they do? They just sit on a shelf. They just collect dust. But that's not what Jesus does with his trophies. When Jesus puts his trophies on display, he sends them out for others to see. There's no sitting on the shelf for them. The people from the town beg Jesus to leave, but they aren't the only ones who beg Jesus. So did this man. He begged Jesus for him to get into the boat with him and go. He wanted to spend all of his time with him. But Jesus had something better in mind. He's going to put him on display for all to see. It says in verse 19, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Show others what I've done for you. Show others how you've been a recipient of divine mercy. Show them how you've been set free and how you've been transformed. Jesus sends him to go back to the people who would have known him from before, to the people who knew all about him, who knew who he was, and who knew all would have happened to him before in life, so they could witness the dramatic transformation that had come upon him by the power of Jesus' mercy. People who couldn't ignore or dismiss that change because they knew his prior life. People who had known him as the raving demoniac, the helpless man, the enslaved man, the raging and screaming man, the man so entrapped by evil that it was going to kill him. Everyone in Christ is a new creation. You are not who you were. As new creation people, we live in the ways that accord with that. And yet, even as new creations, some of us might shamefully admit who we were prior to, to, to coming into Christ. But that doesn't need to be the case. Because what, what else could anyone expect? It's, of course, that's what you did. You know what, what lost people do? They sin. But in Christ, though, that's not who you are now. None of that from before matters. And none of that sticks to you. Yet still, though, the shame that we wrongfully bear carries through in approaching those who knew us as we once were. And there might be a fear that we have of going to those people who once knew you in a, in a prior life. But who better to see the new creation transformation of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that's at work in you? I could tell you the story about Brian, a man who's been sober now for 27 years, a man who has got whom God has called to be a pastor, an excellent one, and a man who is open with his past of addictions and hard living, especially to others who have been mired in such behavior because it points to the magnificence of grace. And from that, he has an empathy and a way of ministering to those who are in bondage like that, to similar things that few of us have. I could tell you a story about Raina a woman who is sober for over 15 years, who also had issues of drugs and alcohol and the hard life that it inevitably brings, but just the same, a woman who is so empathetic and able to step into situations and give the hope of Christ to individuals who are mired in addiction and especially those of, um, who are struggling mothers. Trophies of grace on full display by Jesus. And only a couple Examples of countless others whom Jesus has redeemed and who has put on public display. 
There's no time to loathe in shame or to bear the guilt of wasted time. No, because you have been liberated from those chains that once held you and they hold you no longer. And Jesus is pleased to put you on full display and maybe even to put you in unique situations where others who knew you before can see the transformation that has been affected in you by his mercy. And it doesn't have to be examples of hard living. It could even be whoever we were before, greedy, angry, having rough, age, or rough edges, promiscuous, going on and on and on. But he calls you, though, to put on display, to be put on display before others who can witness that transformation and that new creation that are in him and that is in you. And all to the praise of his glorious grace, which has set you free. See, friends, when Jesus liberates you, it doesn't mean that you're free to go. It means something better. You're free to follow after him, to obey him, and to put on full display his beautiful ways of bearing testimony and good to the, to the good news as Jesus the conqueror continues to liberate real people across the world and in this community here today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that although we were enslaved that Jesus the conqueror has come and has conquered the unseen forces that are at work in the world, the unseen forces, the demons, uh, those evil forces which are try to, to pull us away from one another and from you and wreck us. We thank you that Jesus is the one who has come as our liberator and who has set us free and who has set us free to put you on full display as we are new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us go as free people in this world, in our places of work, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, bearing witness to your mercy that you have put upon us. We thank you so much for that. And we pray that you're, you would continue now to prepare us as we as we get ready to come to the table where we see the Lord Jesus Christ who is crucified for us, where we have been set free by his cross. In Jesus' name, amen.